I want us to look at the call of Matthew, the call of Matthew. I've entitled this message today, The Disciples Call. And as as our sister Helen shared with us this morning, the call placed on her life for her not only to come to know him as Lord and as Saviour, but also to serve him in a specific manner as well. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and we're going to just look at three, three basic truths regarding the calling that has been placed on our lives as his disciple. Now, if you want to look at the, the meaning of the word, the word disciple simply means learner. A disciple is one who learns. That's it. An apostle is someone who is sent. A disciple is someone who learns. So in a sense, all of us, no matter how old we are, no matter how young we are, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, we are in this perpetual state of learning, or at least we should be. So let's, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll open in a word of prayer. So, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, starting there. As Jesus went on from there, let me just stop there for a second. I know I just started, and okay, I apologize for that. Jesus has just finished healing a paralyzed man who was let through. Remember that story? The house is crowded. Four friends rock up with a paralyzed friend, and they can't get into the house. There's so many people, and so they climb on the roof, tear up the roof, lower them down. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The the, the Pharisees and religious leaders freak out. No one can forgive sins except God. And he says, just so you know, the Son of Man has authority. I'll tell you, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And they'd never seen that before, and they're like, bam, wow, that's amazing. So this is where Jesus is moving on from. Just for a bit of context. So back to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, from healing the guy, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Why, oh sorry, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not for the health, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the way you work in people's lives. I thank you so much for working in our sister Helen's life. And I pray now as we look at the calling of Matthew, we might have open ears to hear the calling you have placed on our lives, that we will have open eyes to see you move within all of our hearts. And Father, that you would give us a courageous and bold spirit to follow you when you call out to us that same call of following. So Father, we commit this time to you now and ask that you will minister to each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'm going to look at three things of what I think the disciples' calling is, or what the disciples' call means. And here's the first one. The disciples' call means action. The disciples' call means action. What does it say in verse 9? Like he sees Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and Jesus just says, follow me. That's it. Follow me. And then, Peter, then Matthew gets up and follows him. He goes about his, you know, I, just find those, I just find those two words, those two profound words quite interesting. That's it. 
He doesn't explain anything to him. Matthew may have heard about this man named Jesus. He may have heard about the miraculous things that he may have performed, whatever it may be. But the reality is Jesus comes by, says two words that impact Matthew's life, that moved him into action. He couldn't sit there and do nothing. But those two words are something specific. He doesn't say, follow tradition. He doesn't say, follow culture. He doesn't say, follow what you're used to, follow what you're comfortable with, follow what suits or what is convenient. He says, follow me. Follow me. He's talking about the personal interaction with Jesus as a person, not with a concept, not with an ideal, not with an ideology, not with a worldview, but with a person. There's a, I keep talking about this book I'm reading, which I got from the church library, and I've already promised it to three people, and I haven't even finished it yet. But it's called, it's called it's, um, Life with God. And it's actually a Bible reading program. But this is one of the things that Richard Foster says. He says, Jesus was continually offending the religious professionals of his day because he broke their rules and moved outside the lines of convention. He forgave the transgressors and he criticized the obedient. You see, the condition of our hearts is more important than how well we play by the rules. The condition of our hearts is more important than how well we play by the rules. Matthew responded to a person's invitation, not to commands, not to doctrines, not to traditions, not to culture. He responded to a person. And I think for many of us as Christians today, we've taken the beauty of what the gospel is, the beauty of what being a Christian is, which is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we've reduced it to a set of do's and don'ts. We've reduced it to a set of rituals and performances. We've reduced it to a checklist that gauges how well we are walking in our relationship with Jesus. Because we like things that are tangible. We like empirical results. I was talking with my brother Nick, who's now moved his chair. I don't know where he's, he's disappeared. I was talking with my brother Nick last week. And I was talking with him about uh, Pastor Roger's father-in-law, uh, Pastor John Mansell. And he was, a, he was a, a welder, a boiler maker by trade. He used to work on a submarine. He worked for the British Navy. He worked in submarines and things like that. And when I was talking with him as being a, a, a pastor, he goes... It's one of the worst jobs in the world. I said, why is that, bro? And he goes, because as a welder, I can weld something. I can make something. I can work with all these things. Then I can look back and say, yes, that's what I've done. Yes, that's what I've made. And, and we've, all, we've all done this. We've all, we've all sort of had some sense of satisfaction, whether it's cleaning up a garage and thinking, yeah, and you see the result of your hard work. Whether you look at the bottom line of your business and you see the profits and think, yeah, I've done a good job. Whether it's Adrian, you finish your project and think, wow, everything works except one thing. But when everything works, you can sit there and go, wow, yeah. You see your results, don't you? And we take pride in such things. And that's what John was saying. See, when you work with people, you don't see that. When you work with people, especially as a child of God, you have to by faith trust that he is working in people's hearts because you can't see where people's hearts are at. I see eyes looking at me and I reckon a good 90% of you have already shut off and just thinking, why is he staring at me right now? 
That could be it. <laughs> She's like, okay, but that's exactly what it is. Because you can't, you can't work. You, you, I, can't, I can't shape a person's heart. I shape a person's value or anything like that. I have to trust God takes his word by his spirit and impacts your life to bring change for his glory, not for mine. For your benefit, not for mine. For your blessing, not for mine. And, and we have to understand that. We are called to follow him. And so we've taken the beauty of this gospel about how much this great God loves us. About, about what this great God was willing to do when he adorned himself in human flesh, when he, from eternity past to eternity future, and all of eternity when he inhabited time, when he became subject to the very rules that he set in place, that he was nailed to a cross of wood, like one preacher said, that he created to take upon himself your sin and my sin, that we could somehow, somehow experience the life that he gives through faith in him and through what he has done for us. See, we've taken that and reduced it to something that's controllable for us, for something that makes us feel better. But when you read in the scriptures, what you read is a God who is continually reaching out to people for people to know him. For example, okay, when you look at Adam and Eve and the relationship that they had, see, they were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The reason why they were told not to do that was not because of a, like a, a strict rule that God set in place to say, if you do this, I'm going I'm, I'm to hammer you. He, he was saying this because if you do eat of this, then our relationship will be broken. He says, that's there, but if you do eat of it, then that relationship is broken. Moses is given the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And you read in Exodus chapter 29, verses 42, sorry, verse 42b, it says this. He says about the tabernacle, God says, there I will meet with you and speak with you. The tabernacle and, and all the framings and all the frills and, and all the, the materials and the, the gold and the bronze and the altar and, and, the, and the tongs and the candlestick, all of those were set up, yes, as complicated as it was, for what purpose? So that God would meet and that God would speak and that we as his people could hear and that we as his people could see. See, all of that was set in place for relationship. When David shared, and I shared this in the devotional during the week in Psalm 119, verse 57 and 58, he was sharing relational language when he says that the Lord was his portion and that he was seeking the Lord's face as he held to his precepts, as he obeyed his commands, as he walked in accordance with his word. See, all of those things, not so he could be built up with information, but know that he could experience God in his fullness. That's why it makes it so important. So too, as we look at our direction as a church, meaning even when I say as a church, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about us as his people. Us as his church. We are to be followers of him, whereby his, his word reveals his heart. His spirit revives our souls. 
and his person becomes our greatest goal. That's what it's about. You and I, as disciples of Jesus, as students of the word, are following him who is, as the scriptures turn in Revelation 1, who is, the, who is the Alpha and who is the Omega. He is the one who stands preeminent, transcendent over all creation in Colossians 1. We are not following a church tradition. We're not following legalistic ideals. What we are following is a who. And that is where we're supposed to have our focus. And what I find is this. So when I started going out with my wife, I didn't ask her this, but um, I, I don't, don't think it's, it's, not, it's nothing, nothing negative, okay? Okay, but, but this, is, this is one of the observations I made. Now, I, I, contrary to popular belief, I was not very sort of uh, confident with people of the opposite gender, okay? Um, but when I, when I was going out with my wife, I remember, like, she didn't have a list to sit there and say, well, yeah, you got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, you know, or what is it? You got to have a job if you want to be with me, sort of thing. It's, 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 it was not, nothing. That, it's a very old song. It's a very old song. Okay, um, but uh, from the 80s. I'm, I'm, okay, Shh. oh, that's enough. It's not fairly, okay, but the, the thing is this though. As I followed her, for want of a better word, I learnt, I learnt what the boundaries were in the relationship. As I walked with her, I discovered the things that made her happy and the things that upset her. There was never this whole set of rules in this relationship of to what has to be done, when it has to be done, and how it has to be done. I learned in relationship, in a relational interaction, I learned how far I could go, how far I couldn't go, what I desired to do as I sought to please her as my partner. Okay, and that's, that's been an ongoing journey, even for the last almost 30 years of marriage we've been through. Now, I'm still learning. I'm in that perpetual state of learning. So too is it with our relationship with Jesus. He invites us to follow him. And as we look to follow him, what happens? We start learning the boundaries of what makes him happy, what makes him sad. We start learning the boundaries of what's pleasing to him and what is unpleasing to him, what is honoring him and what is dishonoring him. As we follow him, the whole purpose of him giving us the scriptures is so that he reveals himself to us. And as he reveals himself to us, what do we discover? We discover, oh, I've got to live holy because he is holy. It is there I discover that I'm to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others as myself. It is here I learn about his power and, and what he's given me to live all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so as I open the scriptures, it's not me just opening scriptures for information. It's me opening the scriptures to have him reveal himself to me. Because as I follow him, that's what he does. Because what, what does it mean to follow? What does it mean to follow? Uh, it means to, when, you, when, you, when you're following someone, it's different from following someone like on Instagram or, or on your social media. Stuff. I have none of that social media. So I've got Facebook, but you know... I don't know, how many people have like, follow other people on, on your Twitter and Instagram and your Snapchat? and all that? Raise your hand. Okay, see, that, that sort of following is different from the following that Jesus lays out here, okay? See, that sort of following is you're acknowledging, whether it might be personal interest, whether it might be a, a criticism, whatever it might be, you might have a look and think, okay, and, and you watch whatever it is that they're doing, and then you can, under the power of the internet, anonymously make your praises or critiques known. Everybody's brave on the internet. It's amazing. Okay? And so that's, that's, what, that's what that following is not the sort of following that Jesus is talking about here. 
the sort of following that Jesus is talking about here is you're following someone who knows where they're going. Where you're lost, where you're lost and you don't know where to go, then someone shows up and goes, follow me, I know where to go. When you have someone who shows up and does that, then there's this submission of your heart to their will. There's this reliance on their capacity and on their knowledge to get you out of the situation that you're in. If you want to look at the picture and look at the bigger picture, all humanity, ourselves included, were lost in sin, condemned to judgment in hell, who could do nothing. Even if we didn't know how to get out, we could do nothing to get ourselves out of that situation. Then Jesus came, and he says, follow me. Follow me. And as you follow him, you discover an avenue out of all the sin and all the contempt and all the guilt, all the harsh judgment, all the depression, all the mental illness, all that stuff that surrounds us in the world, all the pressures of life that you need to be like this when Jesus says, follow me. For in following me, you'll have deliverance from such things. For in following me, you'll be given power to overcome such things. For in following me, you'll be set free from such things. But that comes with following him. You see, the call that Jesus lays before Matthew here and before us too is the willful following of him who has the power to do what he says, who has the knowledge to take care of whatever the situation may be and where it needs to go. There's a wonderful verse, um, Titus chapter 2.14. It said, He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unwickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. Not only that, but to keep what has been entrusted to him. Uh, that's in 2 Timothy 1.12. You know, the, the old hymn, I know whom I believe in and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's 2 Timothy 1.12. And not only that, but then to keep us and then to joyfully present us before our creator as a people belonging to him. Jude chapter 1 verse 24 to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. In other words, it is the recognition of his authority to which we humbly submit. It is the recognition of his power through which we are delivered. It is the recognition of his presence by which we are sustained. You see, that's what we receive as we follow him. As he has revealed himself to us, he's revealed himself, sorry, He's revealed through himself the standards by which we abide, the, the, the commands to which we adhere and obey, and, and the works through which we grow fruit. So yeah, it means action. When someone says, follow me, I mean, there's no point. If I say to Joyce, Joyce, follow me, and I start walking, and she stays where she is. She may say in her mind, I know I should, but nah, the, the disciples' calling means action. In this case, it means following. Second thing, I won't be very long on the next few, next few points. The disciples' call also means this, scrutiny. Not so much from yourself, but from those around you. Jesus, because he sees more than we see, you know, he, you know, he sees a sheep without a shepherd, 
He sees a woman ignorant of worship, say, in John 4. He sees a widow giving her all in, in, in Mark 12. Because he knows what's in the heart of man when you read in John chapter 6, and because he promoted the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law, which is what the Pharisees... Do you guys know the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law? Do you guys know the difference? The letter of the law, it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's hard out. It's just, for example, I'll tell you this, I've told you this story once before. Um, the night I got baptized... I was driving home, and I didn't have a driver's license. I was driving home without a license. I got baptized. I was driving home without a license. And um, <laughs> that's a long time ago, okay? I've repented and confessed my sin. And, and, okay, but anyway, I was driving home without a license, and uh, it was raining, and I was speeding. I didn't realize because I was going down a, down a hill, and I was speeding, and the red lights, red and blue lights flicker in my back. When I went, oh, no. And so I pull over, and the gentleman sitting next to me is Tooks. Big boy, really big boy, big tomboy. He goes to me, Joe. Are you going to use your brother's license details? Because back then it was no photo IDs back then. And so I was like, no, I can't. I can't do that. If he, if he asks me, I'll tell him I don't have a license. So he comes up to the window. Now, the letter of the law states that he just goes down and says, all right, yeah, name, age, license, bang. That's the letter of the law. This fella comes up and he goes, where are you coming from? I said, just coming from church, sir. And he goes, can you afford $240? I said, I can't afford $240 there. He said, I tell you what, slow down because the money's better off going to your church than it is coming to the government. And I'm like, thank you, brother. <laughs> and like, well, mate, he's just like, I don't believe that just happened. <laughs> I don't believe that just happened. And so, and so yeah, so the, the letter of the law is just you stick to the letter. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating driving without a license. I'm not advocating anything like this. Please don't, don't anyone sit there get pulled over by, get pulled over by a policeman and say, but my pastor, no, that's, okay. All, all I'm saying is this, that he, he could have, he could have just, just threw the law at me to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, he was willing to give a chance in order to make it a teachable moment for me. And it was a teachable moment. Did I get my license? No, I didn't. I still waited a few more years after that. But I do have my license now, praise God. Okay? I do have my license now, praise God. Okay? But that's the difference, okay? The, the letter of the law is like, oh, it's just hard out and there's no sway whatsoever because you're going by the letter. The spirit of law is what it's trying to get across. It's what it's trying to get across. If you look at the Ten Commandments, you can look at the, look at the letter of the law, yes, but what's the spirit of the law? The spirit of the law is relationship. The whole idea of the Ten Commandments is about relationship. That's the spirit of the Ten Commandments. And God's desire to have relationship and be open for relationship. That's the difference. Okay? And so, that's, so when we have a look, we have the Pharisees here who live to the letter of the law. This is what they say in verses 10 and 11. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and, they asked, and, um, and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Now, in this account, in this account there's like this whole mindset, this whole attitude of separatism, of separatism between the religious leaders and the common man. It's almost like the elites and the common folk, okay? It was a definitive cast whereby judgment was passed, on, passed by the elites on those that they deemed as less than. That's what they did. They had, they had their robes. They had the letter of the law they abided by. They had this moral, upstanding attitude towards everything. And when they looked and saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they asked Jesus this question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It was a connection that the Pharisees lacked. 
a connection that made God accessible to the rest of the world. Because Jesus came to seek and save who? The lost. Luke 19.10. Jesus came as a physician to heal the sick, not the healthy. What does he say in verse 12? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You see, in following Jesus and in the example he sets, there is this inward process of change that takes place by his spirit in each of our lives. And because you are abiding by a divine standard of God's heart, then you'll find yourself being scrutinized by a whole bunch of people who not only are within the church, but also who are without the church. Sometimes some of the harshest people within the church are Christians. My mentor, Keith Henderson, he was the one that sat there. and, and you know, I've, read, I've told it to you before, but how, how Christians are the only army in the world that shoot their own wounded. That's the way he turned it. Because we, even as Christians, can be very judgmental. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we can, with our language, with our attitudes, with our looks, portray a spirit that is not glorifying to Jesus. That could actually be more pushing people away from him rather than drawing them close to him. But this is, a, and this is a, the thing that we need to be aware of, the scrutiny that we fall under if we faithfully follow Jesus. And as we do, little by little, step by step, bit by bit, there's this transformation that takes place. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and eight to 18 says this. Um, Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unfailed faces contemplate the Lord's glory and being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But this is why when criticism comes our way, being filled with the Spirit results in some amazing things. It might be how we respond. It might be the things that we learn. It might be the patience that we express. It might be the, the, the love or the, the compassion or the patience that is executed. Those are all things that we learn as we follow him. And that the scrutiny that we have, I, I remember one brother was saying, you were just, just sharing. I was sharing about a relationship broken down with his family and, and the father was a, a very strong Christian, lovely Christian, but also very legalistic. And, and the father, in his legalism, had cut off all, all interaction with this particular person. All interaction. And, and it was just really sad. So, well, in what way does that honor God? In what way does, that, does reconciliation take place? And it was really sad to see what happened in, in the end of that. So... As you follow, you will be scrutinized. As you are scrutinized, trusting in the Spirit, allowing Him to move and to change and to challenge us and to draw us closer to Himself. But even one thing I want you to be aware of, sometimes we can, as Christians, um, experience suffering or experience persecution or experience opposition, and there's nothing wrong with that. But don't do stupid things that results in you being, like, for whatever reason, don't, don't do stupid things and then class that as Christian persecution. Uh, for example, in Peter it says this, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, 
Uh, verse 14, it says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and, and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Uh, verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Uh, I, I know I've been guilty of this, where I have been very unloving, where I've been very harsh, where I have yelled at people all in the name of God, and then when I've been told to either shut up or get out or be physically, physically moved because of what I've said or what I, my attitude, and then I've, I've classed that as Christian persecution. When a brother pulled me aside and says, um, that, that wasn't the love of Jesus displayed by you, bro. He says, you were, you were reacting because you were being an idiot, not because you were standing for Jesus there, you were standing for yourself. And I, that, was a, that was a really harsh lesson for me to learn and to realize and was how many times I've, I've done such things. So, yeah, just a side note, be very careful in that, that you seek, as you follow him, it's, it is the person of Christ that you want to reflect. It is the person, it's his love, not your own. It is his compassion, not your own. It is his attitude, it is his person that's to shine forth, not your own. And I know it's my own. You know why I know it's my own? Because I take offense to it. Who does he think he is? Where does he get off? What does he reckon? That's where I know it's for me. I've, I've seen this even in my, in my relationship with my wife where I've said things in response. And God has had nothing to do it. I, I've, been, I, I've been quick to pass judgment instead of being humble in prayer. I've been reacting to something as opposed to initiating God's movement in my life. I've been shutting things down instead of being open to what God's trying to teach me through the situation. So please be aware, suffering because you do something stupid isn't suffering for being a Christian. It's suffering because you've done something stupid. And we need to be able to bear the difference. And the Pharisees are the best example of this. We can have this Pharisaic attitude. So when I say a disciple's call means scrutiny, yes, it means scrutiny from those around you because we are like fishbowls being watched by all people, but it also means scrutiny of yourself. That you bring yourself under the light of God's word. That you ask God to change you bit by bit. That you ask God to change you, the attitudes. Because the more you follow, and I was talking with, this, with my brother just recently, the attitudes change naturally. There are things now which I'm not so interested in that I used to be interested in before. There are things I used to do which I don't do anymore and I have no sort of concern doing. I was with a brother just recently and I, I asked him, um, he was telling me one of the things he did was, was get rid of a game on his phone. And I said, how's that been going? And he said, have you been wanting to go back to it? And he actually said, no. No. Why? Because that's the spirit of God working in his life. That doesn't even come into his mind now. That's why it's so important that we follow him, not a set of rules, not a set of regulations. Set of regulations. So the, call, the disciples' call means action. The disciples' call means scrutiny. The disciples' call also means challenge. If you look at verse 12, okay, we read at verse 12. Uh, on hearing this, Jesus says, not healthy, you need a doctor, but the sick. Uh, verse 13, sorry. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not to call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. Henry Earl, when he was talking with, I think it was Ethan and Jacob, and we were at the games like Henry Earl was talking with Jenny, Sister Jenny there and stuff, and he used this line, and, and please don't use this line, but he used this line, he says, better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. 
That's a terrible thing to teach a child. He was, he was teaching it to Ethan and Jacob. Was it? You don't teach the kids that. Better to beg for forgiveness than ask for, for permission. But it, it's like, no, that, that's not a good thing to communicate. This here, when you read in, verse, in, in chapter 12, it's an idea or a theme that sort of, it sort of reiterates what Samuel says to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, when he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. What we see is the Lord's heart and what he challenges the religious leaders to do with the truth that he alluded to in verse 12. What is that challenge? Well, it's the same challenge for us as well. And it's summed up in these few words. Go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I said it before, we are to be in a perpetual state of learning. We are to be spending time in the scriptures as a parent, we, as, as a child, as a, as a spouse. There is always learning to take place. There is always growth that can happen. As, I wrote here, as a parent, there is learning. As a child, there is learning. As a spouse, there is learning. As a Christian, as a child of God, there is learning. And the applicable challenge to these Pharisees directly confronts us as well. He says, go and learn what this means. And what he says is then what? He goes and says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Basically what he's saying to the Pharisees is this. Go and discover and learn who God is and how God works. Not according to what you think, but according to what he says. Not according to what you believe or your experience, but, but how God has communicated himself to everybody. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is the withholding of that which we deserve. What's mercy? Mercy is about compassion. What's mercy? Mercy is about acceptance. What's mercy? Mercy is about relationship. That's what he's trying to say to these Pharisees here. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Go and learn the fact that God wants, is more concerned with a person's heart rather than the person's activity. Go and learn that God wants, to know, wants them to know who he is, not just what they do. Okay, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When he speaks to mercy, he is speaking about relationship. Whereas sacrifice, when he says about sacrifice, not sacrifice, sacrifice is about ritual. Sacrifice is about human effort in this context. Sacrifice is about what he can do to get God's acknowledgement. Because no, I, don't want, I don't want what you do. I'd much rather have you recognize and humble yourself before me, knowing that there is none righteous, no, not one. That means that we are all sinners in need of mercy because mercy understood is then mercy received. Mercy received is then result in hearts that are humbled. Hearts that are humbled then result in trust and dependence and then on thankfulness because the grace of God has taken hold of your heart. It's a harsh truth that many refuse to believe today because what do we like? We like control. We like effort. We like to see our good works pay off. When God says no, because what are, our good works are like filthy rags. They fall far short from what God requires. Instead, he would much rather have us come before him humbly and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> 
This is why the disciples' call is a constant work in progress. It's a work that calls us to action, a, a call that brings scrutiny, a call that challenges us to learn. But it also means that it's a call that we have the privilege to impart to others as well. See, as we respond to Jesus' call to follow, we are the hands and feet through which Jesus extends that invitation to those around us as well. As we are scrutinized by those around us, and even as we scrutinize ourselves, we are to be living testimonies of the grace of God, of the biblical truths of his word, of this heart that's calling out to others, that's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that we experience that power to transform lives and then stand strong in that scrutiny that we have from those around us. As we are challenged to learn that we would know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sufferings, being made conformable to his death. That we would know him who is eternal life. That we would know him and his works and his ways. That's the disciples' call laid on all of us and presented before all of us today. Which means for you and I, what we do next. What we do next. Will we be moved to action? Will we be moved to examine things in our lives? Will we be moved to learn? And I pray that that is what we do because I do know that he wants to take us further than where we are now for our benefit and for his glory. Um, so with that, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the example of Matthew. I thank you for the call that you have placed in his life and how we too can learn from that call as well. I pray that for each of us, no matter what situation that we're in, uh, if we are feeling lost, if we are feeling just overwhelmed with life and we feel the pressures of everything that's going on around us, that we would heed your words of follow you. That we would follow you so that you in turn can not only lead us, but teach us. That you would not only teach us, but shape us and mold us that you would strengthen us and equip us, and that we would be on a continual state of discovery and, and learning of not only who you are, but how you work in each of our hearts. Father, we need you so much. Thank you that we get to follow you. Thank you that we can be called the sons and daughters of God. And I pray that today would be the day that we change, the day where your spirit takes hold, the day where you transform us, and that's all things around us would pale in comparison to the richness and the wealth of knowing you as our God, as our Savior, and as our friend. Now to him who was able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy, thank you that to you be all glory and honor, praise for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.